Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Yeah, I, uh, in the lead up to this episode, I did a bunch of research. And after 30 years of doing this, both as a police detective and a special agent, I've seen one or two things and sat in on one or two interviews and been on trainings. And, and, and I tried to be a, consider myself a lifeline, lifetime student and learner, always looking for better ways to interview and also just to be a better investigator. So a certain amount of cynicism sets in, and I sat there and listened to him unravel his whole tale, both in the public TV shows and then on another podcast, and of course, speaking with you as well. So I was looking for anomalies. I was looking for aberrations that are going to tell me that he's not telling the truth or there's some inconsistency. And I hear quite often that just because he's found not guilty doesn't mean he wasn't guilty. It doesn't mean he's innocent. And in this case, he was. We know that Brian Drips admitted to being the sole perpetrator on this. And then, of course, this extensive amount of uh, touch DNA work that was done by Francine and uh, with the MBAC and, and things like that serves to solidify that almost beyond any conceivable doubt, not reasonable doubt. So we, we know that to be the case. But what I was looking for was, OK, so he came under scrutiny somehow and, you know, he, he's, he was honest enough to admit his past history and what he got involved in. He spoke about his uh, marriage. It, it spawned from prison, and he said he wasn't there to be a dad or to be a husband, and those things caused him stress, and so they were going through hard times when, and ironically, or, or however we want to state it, that his wife was killed just months before he himself died. And he spoke to that with such uh, clarity and such conviction. So, you know, really kind of a... Um, I can see how he how he talked himself into these circumstances by saying that the right way and being fair to to a, a deceased person by saying it that way. But yeah. you know he he believed in that system and he allowed himself to get that way versus somebody who's going to be antagonistic. But do we want people? And are we there now? And this is one of those uh, rhetorical questions. Do we want everybody to just ask for an attorney and turn on their phone and record the police now? Are we at that point? Because maybe maybe that's where we want to go. And, and you know, unfortunately, if Chris had done that, that probably wouldn't have happened. But we didn't have that ability back in 1996 and where that happened. But yes, you're, I, I would agree with you emphatically that he was extremely humble and uh, he didn't hold that grudge. And I looked for that. I looked for that sort of softening of his persona so he would be in a courtroom and he could present himself as a sympathetic character so he could get a bigger settlement. And I just didn't see it, you know, and it'd be nice for my cynical self to have seen that and gone, I know what he's up to. I just didn't see that, you know, and that's yeah. uh, really speaks humanity. Uh, what, how was the how's the phrase done, Jared? You know, um, hope in humanity reinstilled or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Get a little more faith yeah. in humanity so, and yeah. Faith in humanity restalled. restalled well, I, I, yeah, I. Again, I, I look at the, I look at the man and other other than up through his childhood and his teenage years, which I, I don't know a lot of history about, you know, how he grew up. I knew I know he wasn't, you know, well off when he was growing up. And so, you know, exactly what kind of a, a childhood he had. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's worth really looking into. But 
the bottom line is this poor guy, by the time he was 19 years old, was in a, a, um, you know, a full, a, a penitentiary. He was in prison by the time he's 19 and he gets out at, th- at 39 and, you know, sadly, by the time he's 44, 45, he's, he's passed away. And so, you know, how many years did he really have of freedom? And with any kind of resources, it was probably just a minimal, you know, one or two, probably by the time he got his settlement and, and, uh, was actually enjoying any, any semblance of, of true freedom, you know, hopefully you get had some experiences in there and, and, um, but again, I, I don't know all of that. And so, and I, I don't want to solely focus on, you know, the tragedy of his life, but I think if any of us could learn anything about life in general from, and, and some life lessons from what Chris Tapp went through and, you know, even what the, the Dodge family went through is number one, you know, never give up. If you know the truth, then never give up on it. And neither Chris gave up on it and, and Carol Dodge didn't give up on it. And, you know, kudos to both of them. And to me also a, a huge life lesson is even as it, it, well, I cannot fathom anything happening in my life that could even remotely resemble how bad Chris, Chris Tapp had it, had it. And, and if he can come out of this with a, a, just a grateful and a non bitter type of attitude, then I certainly can. And I really have no right to, uh, to complain about most anything you know, compared when, when I compare my story with his. And so hopefully that's, uh, where, where a lot of people are. Yeah. There's a lot of good lessons that come out of this and, you know, kudos out to Idaho Falls for walking this thing back and making it right afterwards, not bunkering in and, you know, looking at it with, uh, with, uh, open eyes and, you know, bringing it to fruition and everybody walking that back. Uh, kudos to Carol Dodge for doing the right thing on this and, you know, making things right, making that phone call to you. Yeah. You know, that's, that was great. That's great. And she was a seeker of truth on this. And that's what ultimately led to this. I, I hate to say it, but Brian drips got this nightmare to go out away from him once he confessed to this and got it off his chest. So I don't want to say kudos, but um, the lesson is, is that this guy was waiting for this day and the nightmares over for him. Could he have come forward all this time? Of course he could have, you know, of course he could have, but that's a, tall order for somebody who is not, you know, not walking with the rest of us in society. Just leave it at that. A lot of good things on this. And of course, the Innocence Project, Justices, uh, Judges for Justice, an an NGO that looked into this and a couple other ones. I think the Idaho, as well as New York, had joined forces on this thing to sort of look at these things. And, um, you know, technology changes. And that's ultimately what got drips. I I think it was a genetic genealogy, maybe workup that was done. I I don't think it was CODIS, was it? Yeah. 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 They eventually got him with the uh, genetic genealogy and... That's right. He had a stepfather, so that's he was outside of that. That's correct. Yeah, yeah that's what thwarted that story it. That was kind of had some interesting twists as well. But I, I think one person that we just have to absolutely include in there is Francine Bardol. I mean, the the effort that she put in. Good two of that's yeah, yeah, two thumbs up. Yeah, tell that story, would you? Tell t- are you, did you explain the um, the the stuffing that previously? Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. we kind, we kind of went over that, but you know. 
the the thing about Francine, and and I know there's a lot of investigators out there, not just you know CSIs, but D- DNA analysts or, or evidence analysts. There there are analysts out there that, and CSIs like Francine that will go so far above and beyond what their job description is in order to bring justice for victims, and it it is marvelous to see, and and. Like you said, Tom, it, it it puts faith back into the justice system for me because I've seen Francine work and I've I've sat down with her in her office and actually talked about some MVAC cases and things like that when she was still with the uh, West Jordan PD. And it, it's amazing. I mean, she she will sit down and and spend a ton of time on the phone or in person with the detectives and the people that are, that are actually, you know, beating the streets and they will, they will go through every single piece of evidence with a fine tooth comb. And just, it's just, it's awesome to see because I'll tell you what, the, the amount of effort that they put into trying to solve that case and seeking for the truth is absolutely awesome. And she's even to this day is still, you know, working with her, her own business and does a ton of MVAC work because she knows what an amazing tool it is. And it's just, it's just awesome to watch. And and if you haven't, you know, if, if there's any investigators out there and you want, you want to know, especially CSIs, if you really want, she should be offering classes and, and because how she goes about it and how thorough she is, and how she tries to examine every piece of evidence from every angle is just, it's amazing. And so, yeah, Francine's hey, a, a hero in this as, as well. As long as we're, we're pushing, pushing the name out there, she was involved in the Maidenwater. She, she resolved that one, correct? Maidenwater murder. I'm going to say forensic file season two. Five. Am I correct? Actually, Maidenwater. Five. Is, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. That was her. Five. Yeah. And that was an yeah, back case, yeah, right? Did. Yeah, she so good. With the the MVAC work on the Maidenwater case too. So, yeah, and you know, and for two crime fans that are out there, I'm going to use like this battery right here and and simulate. So, when somebody says this guy was holding and saying this battery is a cup or um, or a bottle, he attacked me with a bottle, and uh, you know, there's a big difference between fingerprints being in situ like this and being fingerprints being used as if this was a bottle. Big difference. The, all of that evidence should comport with what the person's saying, even that finger placement of all those digits right there. And those are the things, the details that really takes a good investigator and have that good marriage between the investigator and the crime scene tech, unless that detective is also a crime scene tech. And that's why I have that passion for this forensics, because when you show that to a jury and you show that entire, there should be no chinks in that armor at all. That entire process should lay out very well for you and sometimes you just don't have the evidence but when you do you know or those little things there it should be sacrosanct it should be you know 100 percent. so i say that because francine did that like you said that earlier i'm sorry i was actually researching a bit on the uh history when you went through that previously uh on on the case on a specific detail on there but that's um an amazing piece of work and i don't throw that hyperbole out there lightly but when she laid out every bit of uh stuffing or of that teddy bear looking for dna 
you have somebody you can come back and say it has been thoroughly searched head to toe, you know, soup to nuts, and there is no DNA in there. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Big yeah, thumbs up to those awesome. crime scene investigators who do entire garments, you know, with with the MVAC, and it takes multiple filters, as we know, or they're they're not letting any stones be unturned to solve those cases and leave no doubt in anybody's mind. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Yeah. I um before we close, I, I suppose I had a case many years ago as detective and it was a guy with a bald head, which was kind of uncommon for a young guy, but he was I'm, I'm gonna say skinhead perhaps or whatever. Anyway, very rather unique and he uh really beat up a security guard. He actually stole some um OC spray and then shoplifted some other items. And then when he was confronted by the security guard, the undercover security guard at Walmart, he sprayed him in the face and then proceeded to beat him up really, really well. And the security guard was able to write the number down on the on the tag. Well, in those days, you couldn't get real-time photographs. You had to order off photographs of the driver's licenses from Tallahassee, and they would send them to you, surface copy, hard mail, I'm sorry, hard copy via surface mail. So there was about a three-day turnaround on that, and then you would see who that person was. Well, in that three days... Another person came in. I had a witness, I'm sorry, the victim call up and said, the guy's in the store right now. So we respond out there, you know, guns in the face and everything else and take this guy into custody as much as we detain him. And he has no idea. Well, his deportment is such that he's just got the wrong guy. Well, maybe he's an accomplished liar. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, gosh, man, this is a matching rape. And I'm putting myself in that same time period and saying, would that have happened? And I'm saying it's got to be the guy. This is eyewitness testimony. No, that victim had projected onto this ball-headed guy that this was the person. So eyewitness testimony is fallible. I learned a valuable lesson from that, that I need to be sure, and we all need to be sure, that we have some kind of evidence that backs that up. And it doesn't have to be a fingerprint on there. It has to be a timeline or some kind of sacrosanct piece of information that's going to lock that person in on on that that's going to allow that to happen. And that is a very tough job to account for everybody's 100%, all property, all evidence, all what they touched and that timeline. So, but I learned a valuable lesson from that, that I wasn't going to grab this guy and arrest him. Of course, the, prob the probable cause fell apart at that point. And then the next day, the photograph shows up on our, on our subject or suspect, and it wasn't the guy, but that had, that uh, I put them both together. I ordered them up to use that as an example. So this is uh, the things that happen. And I think Hitchcock, made a lot of his movies about that, uh, the wrong man, the series of circumstances that throws somebody in here. Boy, if this isn't one of those cases of it that got extrapolated over 20 years and 52 days. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Tom. Well, uh, in closing, I, I just like to say rest in peace, Chris Tapp, and um, hopefully your legacy will live on in a way that will help future uh, investigations. And it can al always be a some kind of a, a, a case that people can study and, you know, see what went wrong, what went right and, and learn from it and be better. But most importantly, you're in a better place now and I hope Chris, you, you find eternal rest. So, all right, Tom, appreciate it, buddy. And all right, Jared. Yeah. We'll talk again soon. See you the next one. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.